Our Father God, we pray now as we look at these, um, these, this passage, please would you shine your light into our eyes that we would see and understand. Father, please work in us by your spirit to, uh, to have these words shape us and impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Permanent neutrality is a principle of Swiss foreign policy. According to the law of neutrality, Switzerland must not participate in a war between states. Those are quotes from the Swiss statement of neutrality. And established in 1907, Switzerland's policy of neutrality has kept them out of all the conflicts since World War I, World War II, and all the many others. You may agree or disagree and with their foreign policy. That's up to you to debate. Have fun over coffee. But it's their choice, and, and they've made it. But that position of neutrality is one in which people try to take with Jesus. And I would actually probably say that is the vast majority of people in our country would take that place. Now, yes, of course, there are ardent atheists, those who openly and sometimes in a very hostile manner will deny God and stand against him. But I say, I think the majority by far are people who would be undecided. Not sure whether there is a God. The kind of people who say to, to Christians, oh, I'm really pleased that it, it's, it works for you, but it's just not for me. Well, those people who you know, really are interested in Jesus, they know there's something about him. And, and you want to start reading the Bible and find out more, but, but never quite wholly commits and uh, there'll be some people in this room who would fall into that category and I want to say if that is you it's really wonderful to have you here we love have people who are looking into the things of Jesus but yet Jesus says to you this morning that there can be no spiritual Switzerland there can be no statement of neutrality when it comes to Jesus himself what we're going to see today at times might be quite shocking to you. But it is going to help us think about our own hearts and our own relationship and response to Jesus. But also, as Christians, as those who are seeking to reach those around us with the good news of Jesus, the gospel, it's going to help us understand people's hearts a little bit better. For those involved in Holiday Club this coming week, it's going to help us understand the children and their parents. Luke has been teaching over the last couple of weeks about the, the foundations of a Christian life, the, the relationship with God, the importance of both listening to Jesus, hearing from him, and then responding in prayer. Those two foundations, those two pillars of a Christian life. And today, um, there's a change in topic, really, that is brought about by the change in the audience of those who Jesus is relating to. And it starts with another one of Jesus, miracles. But actually, the miracle really isn't described in much detail at all. But the focus here is on the response to the miracle. But let us first look at that miracle briefly uh, and see what it shows us. So the first point you can see there on your sheets is that Jesus frees, or delivers, or rescues, pick your words, Jesus frees with divine power. Have a look at verse 14. 
Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. Now that might sound a bit strange to our modern ears. And yet the Bible presents in complete clarity and utter certainty that there is a real spiritual realm. God and his purposes opposed by Satan and his servants. Uh, Those servants are described in the Bible in different ways, sometimes as evil spirits, sometimes unclean spirits, sometimes as in just here, a demon. Real spiritual beings. And with the coming of Jesus that first time, Satan really ramped up his activity. And so quite often through the Gospels we find demons or unclean spirits who have possessed somebody. And here this demon has suppressed the man's ability to speak. He is mute. But Jesus does what he, what he did when he came across such tragic situations. He casts that demon out. He releases the man. He frees the man. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it may be that actually we almost lose the the wonder of this thing. What an incredible thing it is. We have a man here who is in the grip of a demon, who is unable to speak because of it. The utter tragedy of his situation. And then Jesus, in total authority, Cast the demon out. Brings healing and restoration. He brings freedom. uh, And um, a freedom from the the demon's harm. It is no wonder, is it not, that at the end of verse 14, that people marveled. Wow. And that physical symptom there, in this man, is just a small sign of Satan's intent. Satan and his his servants intent on opposing God and opposing his purposes. Enslave, control, oppress, seek to cause harm and destruction. And that is a reality, was then and indeed today. But in this miracle, Jesus shows that, that powerful as Satan and his servants may be, they are nothing compared to him. No one who saw that miracle could deny the awesome power that Jesus displayed. But they did question the source of that power. So verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul um, seems to be an alternative title for Satan. So later in verse 18, Jesus uses those two titles interchangeably. The Beelzebul, Satan, the prince of demons. And they're saying, look, Jesus, his power to cast out this demon has come from Satan. But to answer this accusation, Jesus starts just with simple logic. So verse um, 17. Uh, But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You see, see, he's saying, look, how could that possibly work? 
Why would Satan, who is so intent on causing harm to this man, all of a sudden undo that by giving Jesus the authority and the power to, to undo it? So clearly different. Jesus has come to, to heal, to forgive, and to save, and to restore. How could, a, how could a kingdom that is divided in that way stand? I'm at the moment reading a novel about the, the War of the Roses. Civil war in England, however many hundred years ago that was. But when you had those two internal camps rise up against each other, it tore the country apart. And Jesus is saying, look, it just doesn't make sense to say that on the one hand, the deep, uh, Satan would want to oppose somebody, and then on the other, Jesus would come to, to liberate it. It just doesn't make sense. Then in verse 19, Jesus encourages the people to be consistent. So verse 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. It seemed like some of the, the Jews, they too had on other occasions cast out demons. No one questions where they got the authority to do that. Why are you questioning Jesus? We're starting to see here that perhaps the crowds are slightly hostile towards Jesus. And then Jesus' conclusion, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now for regulars, if it lies down, does that ring any bells, that phrase, finger of God? That's a real question. Where have we seen that quite recently? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, possibly. That was not one I'm thinking of more recently than that. In Exodus, good. Particularly in the... Oh, I'm going to tell the answer. Uh, I'm sure it'll come back to you when I say it. In the plagues. Do you remember um, uh, as uh, Moses, God was doing these miraculous, huge, amazing plagues through Moses and magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, who've been able to replicate some of them, actually halfway through they go, no, this is the finger of God. They recognised the that this was God's doing. And Jesus is saying, look, what I'm doing here is on par with those miracles, those amazing signs and wonders of the plagues. Now, this, this releasing of this man from demon and, and all these other miracles are, are displays of God's power. This is my authority. And as Jesus has that great authority, well, as he comes and does these things, he is establishing his kingdom. He's bringing it there. He's saying that Satan is defeated and cast out, and I'm establishing my kingdom. And that's the point of this next little story that Jesus tells. I don't know, as things were read, when I read this about the first 16 times, they were about, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? But hopefully we'll get it now. We know what Jesus is talking about, right? So let's, anyway, let's, let's look at it together. Verse 21. When a strong man, Satan, okay, when a strong man, Satan, fully armed and guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he, Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He's saying, look, in the first instance with this man who's just been liberated, but also more generally, there is Satan with real power. 
But one has come now who is stronger than he, who has come to defeat him and establish his own kingdom. And today in our, in our world today, Satan again is still active. Now the Gospels in that time, we, we saw that particular heightened hostility and activity. But he still has real power. And real power over people. He, he still seeks to oppose God and his purposes. He still blinds people's eyes from seeing the, the beauty of the Gospel. He traps people in, in sin and misery. But Jesus has come the one who is stronger and who's come to bring liberation, rescue, deliverance. I say he does that now and, and one day fully and finally he will um, do it completely when he returns again. But praise God there is someone stronger than Satan. Jesus has come to save and to deliver, to bring restoration, healing and a, a renewed relationship with God. Jesus is the deliverer, the rescuer. And then the question then is, well, where do you stand with him? This is what Jesus is starting to draw out. It, through this little story, he's saying, look, there has been a regime change here. With my arrival, my kingdom coming, my divine power, I'm defeating Satan and his purposes. And I've proved that by driving out this demon. And I'm going to do so completely and finally on the cross. When I'm going to disarm Satan of all his powers. And he's saying, look, to all those doubters in the crowd, he's saying, come and join my side. Come and join the winning side. And I say, that's the point of all that follows. Whose side are you on? Where do you stand with him? That, that's our next big heading. We've been thinking in the previous week about what it means, over the previous weeks in this series, about what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like to have a relationship with him. But it's clear that those crowds who were there weren't yet taking that on board. They weren't yet following Jesus. Yes, they marveled, verse 14. When they saw that, and they were like, wow. But some of them weren't convinced. They doubted. If you go back to verse 16, that I missed out, but... Um, you know, uh, so they, they marveled, and then some of them saying, Well, no, it's by Beelzebul that he did it. Verse 16 While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. I can't believe they missed the irony of that. Do you get it? They have just seen Jesus cast out a demon, do this make miracle, they give us a sign. Anyway, they, they missed it. Uh, and so they clearly weren't quite there yet. And Jesus is challenging them. Come on, think about what this miracle proves about me. This is the finger of God at work. This is me bringing God's kingdom. This is me defeating Satan and bringing freedom and salvation. And you have to respond. You've got to do more than simply marvel. You've got to come and join the winning side. Where do you stand with him? And that's the question that he posed to the, the crowds and that's what he, the question he poses to us today and it's the theme that runs through the rest of this passage 
And I say knowing that is going to help us understand what is going on um, through them. And so we've got these, these four subheadings to think through. I'm afraid we are going to race, but if you have questions, please do ask me at the end. First off is, is neutral is no good. Neutral is no good. And first off, neutral is no good because there is no neutral. Jesus says it very starkly in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are just two options, Jesus says. There can be no taking the Swiss route with Jesus. Either you are for Jesus and with his, involved in his work, or you are against Jesus and inhibiting his work. That's really stark, isn't it? I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. You might think, well, okay, that I, people on the news that I can think of who've done all those horrendous things, yeah, I can kind of see how they are against Jesus. But, you know, but, but my nice friends, the children at Holiday Club next week, you're telling me they're against Jesus? I'm not telling you that. Jesus is saying that. He's saying there, there can be no, to mix the metaphor, change the metaphor, there can be no sitting on the fence. If you're not fully sided with Jesus, well then, you're against him. So neutral's no good. It, it, neutral is also no good because neutrality is an emptiness. It's a void that is waiting to be filled that's the point of this next little story. So from verse 24 to 26, um, Jesus tells of an, an unclean spirit. This is just a, a story. He tells of an unclean spirit that has left a person, perhaps just like the, the man though. Um, and then uh, the person that it had left has kind of cleaned up their life. You, you see it's described as um, being having their house swept and put in order. But verse 26... When it goes, that's the, the spirit. When it goes and brings seven, sorry, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the state of that person is worse, worse than the first. You see, the problem was that that person was only partially reformed, but not totally renewed. Jesus is saying, look, not only must the evil be removed, it needs to be replaced with good. Otherwise, it is open for evil to move back in again. Someone is only, to put it in this quite stark language, only safe from Satan when they have the Spirit of God inside. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means whether, whether it is a genuine exorcism or... or uh, far more commonly, um, whether it is just that, that sheer act of will and determination, I'm, I'm going to get rid of this evil in my life, I'm going to stop doing those things, I'm going to live this way for God. You know, it's okay to, to drive out that evil, but to have real change, we need the Spirit of God to move in and to actively side with Jesus. Neutrality isn't an option. Maybe this morning you don't feel like you're against him, but most people in that situation don't. But also you're aware that you're not entirely for him. So, so many admire Jesus from a distance, 
And I'm very happy with him as long as he doesn't make too many demands on my life. Many people go to churches, perhaps even every single week, but then don't think of God again until the following Sunday. But to do that, even if it feels like you're neutral, Jesus is saying is actually to be against him. Secondly, that call to respond to the word. Verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I don't know, did, did she detect the tension in the air? That maybe you said it. Or she genuinely recognised that Jesus, what Jesus was teaching. She genuinely recognised that Jesus was saying, "Look, here I come with power, divine power. I, the one stronger than Satan has come. He's going to come and liberate people. Here I am." And she says this, and she's not wrong. Yes, Mary herself said, "Blessed am I." Way back in chapter one, she's not wrong, but Jesus says that needs to modify that quite significantly. So verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. God's blessing, having God smile upon you, is available to all, whether you're a blood relative of Jesus or not, which is a good thing for us. But we have to respond. Hearing isn't enough. It's hearing that call to come and follow Jesus to commit your life to him. When you hear that call and you do it, that is the path to God's blessing. Enjoying relationship with him now, which you will enjoy for all eternity. Neutral is, is, there is no path. Now you hear that call and need to respond. Thirdly, stop seeking a sign or more signs so the crowd that they continue to grow around Jesus but just like they had in verse 16 Jesus knew that they wanted more they wanted more and more signs but you see in the second half of verse 29 well let me read from the beginning when the crowds were increasing he began to say this generation is an evil generation it seeks for a sign But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus here refers back to Jonah. Jonah, the book that we're going to study on House Party. Isn't that little plug? That's exciting. You hear this story in far more detail there. But you're probably familiar with the gist of it. Jonah is the, the reluctant prophet. God calls him to go to evil and wicked city Nineveh. To go and preach to them and say to repent. Turn away from God, otherwise you're going to face judgments. Jonah's not too keen about that. He gets on a boat and heads in the opposite direction. God goes after him, sends a huge storm. And Jonah says to the people on the boat, says, look, throw me in. I'm the cause of this storm. They do. He goes in. But rather than dying, gets swallowed by a giant fish. And there's he's side in that fish for three days before it spits him, uh, spits him out on dry land by Nineveh, where he goes and preaches and the people wonderfully repents. And then Jody's not happy about that either. But anyway, let's come back on the house party. Jesus says to the crowd, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And Matthew's gospel makes it explicit here that the sign of Jonah is reference to Jesus' death 
and being in the grave for those three days and then rising again. Just like Jonah went into the sea, went into the belly of the whale, was there before being spat out again. Jesus saying, that's the sign you're going to get. My death and my resurrection. We have the, high, we have the blessing of hindsight and knowing what he's talking about there. But that is the greatest sign of all. That's all that they would get. That's all that they should have needed. But yet, it seems like they weren't responding. It, again, Jesus draws the contrast um, later on. He says, look, the Ninevites, they repented. When they saw the sign of Jonah, when they heard his preaching, they repented. Uh, Jesus also then goes on to talk about the Queen of, of the South, verse 31, or the Queen of Sheba, as we may know her. Uh, another Old Testament story where the Queen of Sheba came to King Solomon. She'd heard about his remarkable wisdom and she came to test him, to gauge uh, where he was. And she found that Solomon truly was an agent of God's. He'd had this divine wisdom. And she concluded that. And yet again here, the crowds, despite seeing someone who is greater than Solomon, had not concluded in the same way. And so the, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, and the Ninevites who did repent, well, both of them will serve to highlight the crowd's wickedness on the Day of Judgment. That's verse 31 and 32. Someone greater than Jonah, someone greater than the Queen of the South is here. Stop seeking for more signs. He's given everything that you need. And here today, we've got all the evidence that we can read about all of the miracles that Jesus did. Not just the ones that you managed to see back then or um, maybe you heard about, but we've got the evidence for it all. We know about that ultimate sign, Jesus' death and his resurrection. And I want to encourage you that exploring the truth, careful consideration of the truth is a really good and right thing. And if that is what you're doing, that is wonderful. Keep going but to delay in the face of evidence when you've looked into it and you've gone yeah you know what I think this is right and then to delay some more is actually a sign of avoidance and again this scepticism may seem less evil but it is no less dangerous than outright, uh, than outright rejection I remember an old um, my old youth leader um, talking about his conversion uh, before he was a Christian when he was at school he had a Christian friend and he went home one day and he, he prayed God if you're there would my friend not wear his school tie tomorrow and the next day his friend was wearing his school tie because that's what you do right? but he wanted a sign now in God's kindness he didn't rule it out there and he carried on looking and he heard about Jesus and he responded and he was saved. And he became a youth leader in a church and was one of the key reasons for, for me becoming a Christian and for being here. But, but you know, you, there, that kind of attitude is there. I've heard it a number of times. Look, if God appeared to me and did X, well, then I would believe in him. But the reality is, if God appeared to you and did X, you'd then say, well, can I also have Y? And then can I also have Z? And they would go on and on. Now, if the evidence is there and you've looked into it, now is the time 
to respond. And then finally, let the light shine. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Elsewhere in the Gospels, and uh, Christians are the, uh, the light in which, aren't, which shouldn't be put under a bowl. But here, this light, Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about his ministry. His ministry and his saving work that was done openly and publicly where all could see. He was like that light shining out. He's saying that if we fail to see Jesus, it isn't because Jesus doesn't want to be seen. Or isn't because his light wasn't bright enough. No, all his teaching, all his miracles, everything was open. The problem is with our eyes. So verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. The, the, the good eye, the sound eye, the eye that is genuinely open to the truth, lets in the light and has, therefore, our inner insides are changed. Our entire life is lit up by God's truth. On the flip side, though, if the eye is bad, well, then it won't let the light in and the, light will be, the life will be full of darkness. Again, we have all the evidence here. We have the light brightly shining. But that light must be received. It must be let in. And notice actually in verse 35, though, this is something that we are responsible for. Verse 35, therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful. We are to take action to ensure that our, our eyes do receive the truth. So again, if you are looking into Christian things and you're, you're seeing the evidence and you're seeing things of Jesus, pray, ask God, seek him, say, Lord, please, if you're there, please reveal yourself to me. Please show me Jesus. Please, would I understand who he is? And keep reading, keep reading of the light. Pray some more. Think about what you're reading. Pray some more. Ask others what things mean. Pray some more. Be careful. Take action to let the light shine into our hearts. Jesus wonderfully says, look, here I am. I am the rescuer, the one who's come to free people. I'm the one stronger than Satan, the great deliverer. And he says, look, you come and join my side. Simply marvelling or being impressed isn't enough. And you can't just say that thing, well, yeah, I think, you're, I, think you're, I think you're good, Jesus. But don't hold him back. Do you say, look, no, come and make that active and decisive step of siding with me. You've got to do that. Because even if, even if you're, you're trying to stay neutral, you're passively and yet very deliberately siding with his enemy. Take that step today, even this morning. If that is you and you go, you know what? I have just been holding back. I've seen enough. I know that Jesus is the, the rescue. I know he's God's son. I know he's the one who's bringing his kingdom. 
you're holding back for whatever reason, today is the day to side with him. And for all of us helping out at Holiday Club, these are the stakes we're playing with next week. There's nothing more important that we could be doing than seeking to reach those who are lost and, and trapped, who need desperately to hear of Jesus and the salvation and rescue that he brings. But also remember that that is what we are we're up against. It is a real battle next week. Keep praying. Praying for the Lord's work in these hearts of these young lives. And that's true for Holiday Club, of course, this week. It's true for, for us every week as we go about, uh, about our lives, seeking to, to reach those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great authority and power. We praise you that you are the one stronger than Satan, who came to defeat Satan, who at the cross, um, uh, the cross uh, took away his power and defeated him completely. Though we are aware of his, his activity still in the world, and so we look to you. Father, we, for those who, um, who have been thinking about Jesus for a while now, we pray that you continue to reveal him to us and that we would all truly side with Jesus. Father, please help us next week as we enter Holiday Club. Lord, we long that those children and indeed whole families would come to see Jesus' greatness, his power and his authority. Please, would, that, would the light shine out so clearly next week. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.